This is the Green Street News. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts with your weekly update on the environment and your health. Welcome back. On today's show, we're going to talk with investigative reporter Skylar Mitchell about the horrendous rail accident and chemical release in East Palestine, Ohio, and how government deregulation of railroads, chemical manufacturing, and other industries, championed by many political leaders, is actually putting all of our lives at risk, as the people of East Palestine are finding out the hard way. All that and the latest environmental headlines coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty Wood, what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Good news? Any? Well, there might be some good news, but I'll leave that, I'll leave that for last. Okay. Okay. So this first article is about algal blooms. Um, basically, an algal bloom in the water could mean trouble in the air. And this was published in the Coastal Review and written by Megan May. Haley Ploss pulls on a pair of rubber gloves. She lays on a dock and gently reaches her hand into the water. A mucus-like substance clings to her glove as she pulls back, leaving stringy threads on the water surface. While brilliant in color, the network of blue scum across the pond is dangerous cyanobacteria, a type of harmful algae. Sometimes confused with aquatic plants like duckweed, cyanobacteria can vary from looking like green or blue-green opaque, thin mats, to translucent paint or dye. Blooms pose a threat to the local environment, leading to fish kills, ecosystem damage, and drinking water contamination. They can also cause serious illness in humans and death among pets and wildlife. Researchers at North Carolina's Duke University are investigating the links between cyanobacteria and amniotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. Harmful algal blooms occur naturally, but human activities are increasing their frequency and intensity. The blooms feed on nutrient runoff, anything from leaking septic tanks to fertilizer and industrial waste. While southern states have dealt with this for years, it's a growing global environmental issue exacerbated by climate change. Increased surface temperatures lead to warmer waters and more extreme storms are followed by periods of drought. That combination is a perfect recipe for the algae. Storms increase nutrient runoff into waterways and then drought leads to stagnant warm water. Okay, so what's this have to do with air quality? Well, listen, the reason that they're doing the research is because of this. Okay. Harmful algal blooms emit cells and chemical compounds that travel as tiny atmospheric particles called aerosols. Hmm. Haley Plus has partnered with a local environmental group to deploy purple air air sensors all along North Carolina's Chowan River. The goal is to see if blooms correlate with poor air quality due to an increase in these aerosols. Not only does the region experience more blooms than other areas of the state, it also has a high prevalence of asthma among the population. Her experiments in the university demonstrate that gases emitted from blue-green algae might condense in the atmosphere as a liquid and then travel as aerosol. Mm. This is really, really important. Yeah. Yeah, because we know of another researcher who we actually had on this show who is doing research at Dartmouth University and in the New England states on this very same thing, on the aerosols coming off this very dangerous blue-green algae. So it's not just a matter of avoiding the pond that has the algae in it, but can't really be anywhere around it. Well, that's the deal. 
first of all, it's found commonly in freshwater ponds, but it can also occur in brackish or salt water. I mean, we're talking about anywhere. Yeah, right? We're talking yeah. about any surface waters. I mean, obviously not out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean because it's not getting those nutrient feeds, right? And this is a new problem because of climate change or at least it's, the problem is getting more the pronounced? The problem is getting worse because of climate change because the temperature of the water is higher. Good God. Yep. Okay. Okay. So that's interesting. Yep. And I have some free advice to CEOs. This is CEOs of big companies, big yeah. industries, from Aaron Brockovich. Ah, yes. okay. What she had to was, say. This was published in the Brockovich Report, written by her, of course. Mm -hmm. She says, I've been watching CEOs fumble for years, and I have one simple message to convey. The truth always comes out. <laughs> when you start with ethical business practices, you don't have to deal with legal or regulatory repercussions. You can be the ones to stop this legacy of pollution and corruption, because chemicals spill, trains derail, Accidents happen, toxins escape. It's never if, it's almost always certainly when. So, imagine a world where companies that produce or work with any kind of chemical spend their resources keeping people safe. After all, people are the ones you depend on to buy your goods and services. If we're all poisoned, there's no one left to keep the economy running. <laughs> Next, be honest. I'm so sick of those at the top of companies being surprised when things go wrong and then skirting their responsibilities. It's exhausting watching CEOs act like they had no idea that the chemicals they work with might be unsafe, especially when they get into the water, soil, or air. Be truthful up front. We live in an information age where the truth always comes to light. Sometimes you can delay it. It might not emerge until years of litigation and legal battles, but pretending like your chemicals aren't harmful isn't helping anyone. And communities are becoming braver at standing up to polluting corporations. You might try to hide information, but so many more people are willing to do the research, file freedom of information requests, speak up at public meetings, and stand up mm -hmm. to you. Mm -hmm. And finally, it's time to get hip to the fact that if you don't want more government oversight, you need to oversee yourselves. The private sector has many more resources than regulatory agencies or local governments and can easily take the lead on reducing waste, increasing efficiency, and helping to solve environmental problems rather than creating them. If you're at the top of a company dealing with a crisis, get out there and respond. Talk to the people in the community you have harmed and give them straightforward information. Take notes and make changes. Become a success story that others will want to model. Business can and must become a force for good in the world. Erin Brockovich, on it again. On it Good again. for her. Uh, you know what? It was probably the, it, the train derailment I'm sure it was. that inspired this. They've been fumbling the ball badly yeah, yeah, in yeah. East Palestine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. This was published in a Yale University online journal and okay. written by Jim Robbins, and the title is Bio-Based Products Are Gaining Momentum. Well, this is good news. This is a good news article. Well, I mean, I'm not quite so sure. I'm not quite okay. so sure. Okay. Okay, in the 1930s, the DuPont Company created the world's first nylon, a synthetic polymer made from petroleum. The product first appeared in bristles for toothbrushes, but eventually it would be used for a broad range of products from stockings to blouses, carpets, food packaging, and even dental floss. Nylon is still widely used today, but like other plastics, it has environmental downsides. It is made from a non-renewable resource. Its production generates nitrous oxide, a potent greenhouse gas. It doesn't biodegrade, and it sheds microfibers that end up in food, water, yeah. plants, animals, and even the clouds. 
right? So now we have we have these companies. uh, One of them from San Diego called Genomatica is offering an alternative, so-called plant-based nylon made through biosynthesis, in which a genetically engineered microorganism ferments plant sugars to create a chemical intermediate that can be turned into nylon six polymer chips and then textiles but it's genetically modified. So we're genetically modifying the plant to do what we want it to do. Mm-hmm. And is anybody thinking about what happens when the plant gets out into nature? Well, that would be a question for them. Are they actually going to do this in a laboratory and in an enclosed space, or are they gonna actually let yeah, it but, out? But Patty, what Because we know that once it's out, the wind is going to- Carry the seeds carry... all over the world. And now will it out? Yeah. Is it going to outcompete the the natural plant? This is, you know, we had this conversation plant? about genetically modified trees the other day. It's nuts. I mean, and letting them and planting them in the wild, letting them out there into nature. What is that going to do? And we're patenting these plants. These plants belong to such and such a company. You're going to have labels on trees that say, you know, this tree belongs to the Shell Oil Company. <laughs> All right. Okay. What else you got? Okay, and this last one is about glyphosate, and we're all familiar with this. This is Roundup. This yeah. is the pesticide that has been around for a long time. This is published in EcoWatch, written by Olivia Rosan, and the title is How Pesticide Use and Climate Change Make Each Other Worse and What We Can Do About It. The energy required to produce all of the glyphosate used worldwide in 2014 was as much as would be needed to power 6.25 million cars for a year. That's one of the striking findings from a new report called Pesticides and Climate Change, a Vicious Cycle, from the Pesticide Action Network North America, PANA. Report co-author Asha Sharman said, quote, we found essentially that climate change impacts are predicted to make pest pressures worse and make pesticides less effective, ultimately increasing pesticide use due to climate change, while at the same time exacerbating climate change as pesticides release greenhouse gas emissions. From factory farming and meat consumption to Amazon deforestation, increased attention has been paid in recent years in the ways in which the dominant industrial agricultural system contributes to the climate crisis. Yet, while pesticides and fertilizers are deemed essential for conventional farming, these synthetic chemicals have largely been left out of the climate and agriculture discussion. 99% of all synthetic chemicals, including pesticides, are made from fossil fuels. And major oil companies, ExxonMobil, Chevron Phillips Chemical, and Shell, all either manufacture pesticides or their chemical precursors. Turning petrochemicals into pesticides also requires that massive amount of energy. And it goes on and on. They have you know, three major solutions, including pesticide reduction targets and so on and so on. Well, I, saw, know, I saw that organic farming was one of their solutions. Uh, organic farming is one of the things that they should be boosting funding for. You know, The government needs to support farming that does not contribute to the contamination of our planet or to climate change. It's an interesting hypothesis they got that, that this is a, a vicious cycle that's just going to increase both climate change, accelerate right. climate change, and increase the amount of pesticides that are needed. Right. I noticed one of the things in there was um, they talked about how chemical fertilizers and pesticides are perceived as absolutely needed for, the, for our well, agricultural system. Well, you can talk system. to organic farmers about that. They absolutely don't need them to grow you know, enormous quantities of 
crops, whether they're grain crops or whether they're actual vegetables. Isn't it true that the amount of crop loss now is just about the same as it was back in the early 1950s when we first started using chemical pesticides in agriculture? Yeah, the pre-pesticide days. Yeah. We were losing, what, about a third, a third. 30%, 30% mm-hmm. of the crop. Yeah. We're losing about 33 to 35% of the crop now with all of those pesticide and fertilizer inputs. You know, I mean, we're not working with nature. We're working against nature. And let me tell you, we always lose. That's a hard lesson for people to learn. Yes, it it's is. Just Especially so if hard. you can make money making these products and telling farmers that they have to use them all over the world. We make pesticide products here in this country that we sell to India. And these are like, you know, really toxic products that people are getting sick from, as they are in this country also. But they also have the seed terminator gene in them. Oh, boy. So the Indian farmers who are used to saving a certain part of their their land to let the crops go to seed so they can use it for the next year. Can't do that anymore. Can't do that anymore. Patent infringement. Oh, yeah. There's just, it's, it's really smoke. a sad situation. Yeah. Heed Aaron Brockovich's words. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Well, there's only one place in the universe where life can bloom and grow. But we're doing our best to screw it up like we got somewhere else to go. Let me tell you the facts you may not like. It's only a matter of time. Till the ice all melts and the water comes up, what we're doing is really a crime. What are we doing? What are we doing? Messing things up in our own backyard. We can do better. We got to do better. It just can't be that hard. What are we doing? What are we doing? Making a mess, a mess of this place. Come on, people, working together. We can save this place from the human race. Well, plastic's elastic, it's so fantastic, but it never really goes away. It all ends up in the ocean somewhere, and it's all coming back someday. So just you mark my words, my friend, we're gonna have to pay the price. When we're buried in plastic ten feet deep, we're gonna end up paying twice. What are we doing? What are we doing? Messing things up in our own backyard. We can do better, we got to do better. It just can't be that hard. What are we doing? What are we doing? Making a mess, a mess of this place. Come on, people, working together. We can save this place from the human race. The word deregulation is a popular one among political candidates. The idea of freeing companies from the heavy burden of government regulations in order to create more jobs is a cruel myth that has permeated the political debate for more than a century. Beginning at the end of the 19th century, American presidents and elected officials took on the responsibility of breaking up huge monopolies, creating laws that protected consumers and workers, and creating social safety nets for those who, despite the progressive laws, nevertheless fell through the cracks. 
At the time, government saw itself as the buffer between big corporations with a mandate to produce ever greater profits by cutting costs or raising prices, and the rest of society which needed to be protected from shoddy products, dangerous processes, and excessive prices. The idea that government needed to unleash America's great industries and allow them to prosper and grow without interference was championed by President Ronald Reagan, who believed that rising corporate profits would increase production and jobs, and eventually the benefits of great corporate wealth would trickle down to workers. And there may be some truth to that. But by and large, regulations on industry have been put there for a reason, to overcome some threat of danger protect consumers against high prices, or right some injustice which the industry has failed to address. Railroads, for instance, had safety regulations which required a certain number of workers to ride along with every freight train. Companies that made products out of hazardous chemical ingredients were required to monitor and control their emissions to keep the air clean deregulation weakened or eliminated those laws. There's been some good reporting about how the railroad lobby has worked to roll back safety regulations for these trains carrying hazardous materials and all sorts of other things. And, and I saw that and I was thinking about, you know, we're, we're seeing some increased scrutiny of the railroad lobby, but there hasn't been as much attention paid to the vinyl chloride lobby, um, and vinyl chloride is primarily used to make PVC plastic, and PVC is used in water pipes, medical devices, vinyl flooring, and vinyl siding, and other things as well, but especially used for um, construction purposes and, and water infrastructure. That's Skylar Mitchell, a reporter for The Intercept, the American nonprofit news organization that provides outstanding independent reporting on all kinds of issues, including environmental health. Skylar was formerly a fact checker, and she knows how to get to the real facts behind the story, including the situation in East Palestine, Ohio, where derailed freight cars ignited not only a conflagration of epic proportions and a debate over deregulation and how we handle the transport of toxic materials, but also about our appetite for plastic. we're seeing an uptick in plastic usage and demand for plastic, not just PVC, but PVC is part of that. And when I was looking at all of the market research forecasts, you know, not only has this demand grown, but it's projected to continue growing. And, you know, we're at this moment where we have a deeper understanding of, of climate change. I think people are finally starting to really pay attention to the environment and, and to climate change and then it just feels you know kind of it's sort of incongruous that we're having this major plastics boom alongside of that and it's not something that i think a lot of people are really thinking about and pvc uh there was a piece in inside climate news that called pvc the, the worst of the plastics and and it really is because it's so toxic in every step of its production and its disposal PVC is made from vinyl chloride, a highly flammable gas that, as Schuyler points out, is toxic in every phase of its lifetime, from its creation in giant chemical factories, to its transportation, like the event in Ohio, to its use in various types of products, and eventually in its disposal. Burning products made with vinyl chloride releases dioxins and other hazardous chemicals. 
and it's almost impossible to recycle. Less than 1% of PVC is actually recycled because of the, the chemicals involved. It also has really high um, amounts of chlorine that are involved in, in the production. So the global trend of PVC is troubling. And, you know, this piece, it ties this, this broader trend to this latest incident. Um, and I spoke with uh, Dr. Jimena Diaz-Lieva, who's the science director at the Center for Environmental Health. And I can read a quote I had from her, which was, it feels like an inevitability that we'll have more disasters like what happened in Ohio, given the growing dependence on and production of plastics and the lack of oversight. It's really unfortunate that PVC is still in the conversation knowing what we know about its toxicity. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, a lot of experts have been calling out is, is the fact that this horrible incident it's one of the, you know, thankfully people are, are paying attention to it on a national scale, but it's far from the, the only incident in which like vinyl chloride is affecting, you know, communities and it's, it's really related to this bigger plastics boom. Two of the major PVC producers have seen multiple fires and explosions at their facilities. In 2004, five workers died when vinyl chloride exploded at their plant. Similar explosions at other plants have cost the lives of at least 29 workers over the past two years. Skylar Mitchell found data from the nonprofit watchdog group Good Jobs First, indicating that the big four PVC manufacturers have been cited 245 times for safety and environmental violations since 2000 and paid more than $50 million in fines. In addition to having records of violations and penalties for environmental violations and uh, workplace safety violations, every company had violations for hazardous materials transportation laws. So they were all filed as violations of railroad safety laws by the Federal Railroad Administration. And then when I looked at you know what those actual violations were, they were all for hazardous materials transportation. I'm hoping, you know, that with this latest event, there will be increased scrutiny of the way that hazardous materials are, are transported and, you know, also the culpability of the railroad lobby in lobbying to decrease safety regulations and just, you know, sort of the, the failures of our, of our railroad infrastructure and the ways that that contributes to these types of disasters. So how does a product which has such a troubling history of harm to workers and public health become so ubiquitous in our society? For one thing, these companies are making a lot of money. Because the industry's growing, there's there's more money to, to be spent. The PVC lobby has a very powerful lobby group called the Vinyl Institute that's been around since the 80s, but has increased its spending on lobbying almost every year for the past few years. And this most recent year was by far its highest spend on record at over half a million dollars. So the four main companies that are the full members of the Vinyl Institute, all four of them have announced multi-million dollar or billion dollar expansions to their PVC manufacturing facilities since um, 2018. So these are massive expansions. So clearly um, PVC has, has proven to be quite profitable. Um, you know, there's been money to, to, to spend um, with things like the Vinyl Institute. Money to spend on lobbying to eliminate regulations that cost the company money. 
Meanwhile, back in the smoldering town of East Palestine, residents are being told that their air is safe to breathe and their water is safe to drink. But skepticism runs high. EPA has been testing the air and the water, and so far, you know, residents have been informed that everything is safe, that there aren't, you know, dangerous levels of chemicals. But one of the concerns is, you know, it's not just the vinyl chloride that's now a concern, because when you burn vinyl chloride, it releases these dioxins. Um, it can release things like phosgene or, or, or carbon monoxide or, or other, you know, really potent toxics. It kind of is. It's, it's it's not just this one chemical. It can also be, you know, these different um, other compounds that, that are created from incineration. I also spoke to Teresa McGuire, who is an executive director at the local Humane Society, and they've been getting all sorts of calls about chickens that have died or that look like they have chemical burns, um, cats that are coughing, sneezing with watery eyes, dogs that are unable to use their hind legs that seem disoriented, are coughing, throwing up, lethargic. And so, you know, I can't say this; these are all definitively related to the incident, but people are definitely concerned. And, and if your pet is throwing up and, and very sick, it definitely is going to make you wonder about your own health and what effects there might be to the people in that area. And the other thing about vinyl chloride that is, is concerning has been shown to have an effect over time. So, it, you know, maybe at, at this point in time, maybe they're not detecting, you know, super high levels of pollutants in the air and the water. But over time, those trace amounts can cause effects to the liver and damage to the nervous system, the immune system. It can increase a person's risk of developing liver, lung cancer, as well as angiosarcoma, which is a cancer that forms in the lining of blood vessels and lymph vessels. It can affect the kidney, the lung, the spleen, blood. So there are a lot of different ways that vinyl chloride exposure can harm people. And, you know, I, I was just reading today that certain residents of East Palestine are getting their own studies done. You know, they, those who can afford it have been paying to have their air and, and water tested by other private groups. So I think we'll sort of see what comes out of those. But I know that there, you know, a lot of people are concerned right now. The debate over the safety of vinyl chloride, PVC, and the transportation of hazardous chemicals over aging rail tracks is just getting started. And it's nice to think that it will lead to the reinstatement of some of the safety guardrails that were triumphantly removed over the past few years. But it won't solve the lingering problem of environmental justice, which pervades all discussions about hazardous chemicals and their transportation. You know, many of these PVC manufacturing facilities are in either poor neighborhoods or communities of color and are exposing those those communities potentially to toxins and pollutants. So it's definitely, you know, a much bigger issue. And there have been people, you know, fighting on the ground, you know, on behalf of their their communities for regulations or for, you know, these companies to take accountability for their emissions. Um, so there's just definitely a, a bigger story here. Skylar Mitchell, investigative reporter with the nonprofit Intercept. Her story on the rail accident and chemical spill in East Palestine, Ohio, is called The Myth of Safe Plastics Persists Despite Risk of Disasters Like East Palestine. I urge you to read it. 
If you missed any part of today's show, you can always hear it again on our website, greenstreetnews.org, or on any audio streaming platform, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this program, please tell your friends. We're trying to build our audience, and you can help. That's going to do it for our show today. Special thanks to our guest, Skylar Mitchell, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our webmaster, Allison Dunn, and our marketing director, Patricia Bridges. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. <laughs>